Our second reading this morning concludes uh, chapter 7 of Matthew's biography of Jesus. We're reading the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is speaking uh, the last words of that sermon. Listen now for God's word to you. Anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise, like a person who builds a house on solid rock. Though the rains come in torrents and the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against that house, it won't collapse because it is built on bedrock. But anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey is foolish, like a person who builds a house on sand. When the rains and floods come and the winds beat against that house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he taught with real authority, quite unlike their teachers of religious law. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I I need to know what the next slide is. That's what I mainly need. So I have a new... I have a new... um, um, habit, hobby. I have a new project I'm working on this year. I'm tying my shoes differently. My mom taught me how to tie shoes probably when I was three or four. And um, until uh, the beginning of this year, I always tied them that way. But I saw a TED talk that said I had been doing it wrong all along. So, you know, and, and, um, and, uh, and so despite the, the incredible difficulty of making one tiny change, it takes about a quarter of a second to make one change. And basically, I think of kind of the way that I've always done it is kind of the normal, regular way. And uh, there's one one move I do differently. And it's instead of going up, I go down, right? But it's clumsy. I've got to kind of pick my hands up and move them around to the other side. And it's like, so it slows me down. And over the course of this year, you know, I've been doing it since January. It was kind of my my uh, my really <laughs> ambitious New Year's, New Year's resolution. Um but I've been working on it, and I've shaved some time off my limit now, so I'm a little a little quicker. But I've probably uh, wasted, I don't know, a minute and a half, maybe two minutes over the course of this year um, because it's really slowed me down um, tying my shoes. Um, and uh, so that's that's kind of been my project this year. And I don't know if you've tried to change things in your life, particularly things that are kind of very habitual, but they can be they can be it can be difficult to do that. Last year I did one too. Uh, last year I. I started using this. I started using sunscreen. I'm 56 years old. I grew up in the desert southwest. Um, I grew up in New Mexico, which is high altitude and um, uh, and um, very sunny. And um, and I did all the things that your dermatologist asks you if you've done, uh, like have you had sunburns that peels? And it's like, well, that that's what I called you know seven or eight times a summer. Um, and that was just the way we, we rolled in um, New Mexico when I was a kid. And he said, well, you should use sunscreen. And I said, isn't the horse kind of out of the barn now, right? You know, it's like it's kind of too late for me. You know, I'm just going to have to deal with whatever's come comes as a result of that, that uh, bad upbringing. And he said, no, actually, you know, apply sunscreen today, and it will actually, uh, you know, improve the health of your skin as you go along, or it'll, it'll slow the decay of your skin's health. So, so I started doing that, um, and all during 2017 I did it, and so far all this year, the only time, ironically, the only time I didn't do it was um, when I took my trip to New Mexico in April. Um, so, it's so, something about the place, 
But I, I forgot to bring it, and I kept meaning to go buy a store and pick up some more, and I just never did. So, so for five days, I didn't. But out of the last 400-something days, I've, I've pretty much put on sunscreen every day, and I hate it. Um, again, it's a trivial thing, right? But it gets me all goopy, and, you know, it's like I, you know, ugh, sticks to my hands, and I've got to go, ugh, right? So I just don't like putting the sunscreen. But I put it on my forearms and on my face and on the back of my hands because that's what the dermatologist said. He would be happy if I put it everywhere, but... but, um, but we, we negotiated down to those, those parts of my body. So, so I've been doing this. And again, it's, it's not that it's hard, but it's change. And I don't like change. I, I, you know, and my guess is neither do you. My guess is that there's all kinds of things in your life you either have done or have refused to do because they're change. And in the case of when you did it, it was because somebody persuaded you it was worth doing. It was a change worth making. And there's other things where, you know, They've got their story and it works for them and, you know, you know, God bless you. Everybody needs a hobby, but not for me. Thank you very much. I'm not going to quit drinking coffee or whatever. And, and maybe that's an example. You know, I use that as my example, right? Because there's always news about coffee and it's always contradicting the last news you heard, right? Today it's bad. Tomorrow it'll be good. And then the next day it'll be bad again. It just seems like coffee. You're kind of wondering, you know, who are the scientists and do, are they studying the same species when they, when they do these studies on, on coffee. So one of the things that convinces us to make a change in our life is when, when we have an argument that we buy, right? It may not be enough, but you've got to kind of start with that. It's like, why should I do that? Why should I make that change? Okay, you know, yes, it works for you, but is there actually a reason there? Or are we just kind of saying, you know, adopt each other's hobbies? So we look, we look beyond the actual change and we say, what is this based on? What is this rooted in? Is there some basis for me to make this change, to, to spin the extra quarter of a second every day when I tie my shoes? Um, is there some reason I should do it? And in the case of the sunscreen and the shoelaces, there was. It was science. I'm, I'm a sucker for a scientific argument. In the case of the shoelace argument, there was a guy who gave a TED Talk, and he explained all the physics of, sho- of shoelace tying. And basically, the stresses are such that, that shoes, your shoelaces come apart if you tie them the way I always was taught to tie them, the easy way. But they, the stresses actually keep it taut if you, um, if you tie them the, the way I have learned to do. So I'm a sucker for a scientific argument. Somebody says, oh no, there's, there's some deep, uh, engineering physics. It's not like I'm gonna go do the math myself, but I figure you got a TED talk out of this. You must know something. So I say, okay, there's a scientific argument I can buy. Same thing with the sunscreen, right? I don't understand dermatology. I assume a dermatologist does. So when he tells me, you know, no, you still want to protect the skin even at this late date, even in Alaska where the sun, you know, is an iffy thing and half the year it's not even that. Um, and we're way down here at sea level. So he says, no, still do it, still do it. So it's like, okay, well, he's got a scientific argument, so I do it. But we need a basis. We need a reason to make those changes. And that's what we're going to talk about today because Jesus is a preacher. And you know how preachers work. At the end of the sermon, right, they tell you a joke, they tell you some stories, right, and then they tell you to make some changes in your life. And Jesus is just like the rest of us preachers. Well, he's, he's actually much better, as we'll see. But, but Jesus is right about that. Jesus, Jesus understands how preaching works. He appeals at the end of this sermon for some changes. He says, you need to make some changes. But Jesus is different from uh, regular preachers because he doesn't say, okay, tinker around up here on the edges. He doesn't say, make a few little adjustments here and there. Jesus says, no, here's your problem. Change the foundation. If you change the basis, then other things flow out of that 
more or less automatically. So he says, let's go right down to, to rock bottom. Let's go right down to the basis. Let's go down to the foundation and fix that. And then we don't have to worry as much about the things up in the surface. So that's the way Jesus concludes his sermon. But he doesn't, he doesn't simply give instructions because again, Jesus is a great preacher. And so Jesus doesn't simply give you some instructions. Jesus gives you a very memorable, memorable picture. Uh, the, the picture of the house that's built on sand or the house that's built on rock. And we, we just sang a song about it. We're going to sing another in a minute. I checked on, there, there's a website called Hymnary, hymnary.org. And it's uh, run out of um, the Calvin Institute of Christian Worship or something. Um, and they've got like all the songs there. So, you know, all the traditional hymns are listed. A lot of uh, more contemporary music is listed there. And so I just said, how many songs have been written based on this little illustration? And there were six pages of about a 100 per page. So I said, well, that's a lot. And they may not have them all listed for um, any countries except like the U.S. and England or something like that. So so it's a very it's a very familiar image. If you've ever been in Sunday school, you probably can do the hand motions. Um, so so um, uh, this is a familiar story, but it's the reason Jesus gives it is because he wants us to make a profound change in our lives. So let's listen to Jesus' words here at the end of the um, Sermon on the Mount. He says, Anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise, like a person who builds a house on solid rock. Though the rain comes in torrents and the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against that house, it won't collapse because it is built on bedrock. But anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish, like a person who builds a house on sand. When the rains and floods come and the winds beat against that house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. So, Jesus gives this picture. What will keep your house from falling in? The answer is, what is it built on? Um, so, what does he mean by this? Well, the foundation, I'm going to argue, is the foundation. It's what everything else is based on. But what are the storms? I was reading a commentary and it said the storm is Judgment Day. And Jesus talked about Judgment Day last week, so maybe maybe that is what he's getting at. Uh, maybe he's saying that there's one storm in your life, it's Judgment Day, it'll come at the very end of the age, and uh, that's what Jesus is talking about. And maybe it is, maybe it is, right? Uh, it may include that at least. But, you know, I'm thinking to myself, whoever came up with that theory probably had a pretty sheltered life. Because I think a lot of us have got storms that have nearly overwhelmed us in our lives. I know I have, and I know some of you have. I know some of your stories. I know some of the storms that you've had to weather. I know the difficulties you've had in your marriages. I know the difficulties some of you have had financially. I know the losses that you've had to face. And I know some of the health challenges that you're living with. There are plenty of storms between here and Judgment Day. In fact, Jesus said, don't borrow trouble from tomorrow. Right? He said, there's plenty of trouble today. So I'm not, I'm not convinced by the argument that the storm is, is a one-time thing that won't happen until, until we're standing before God on Judgment Day. I think Jesus is saying, if you want a life that can withstand the storms, the trials, the difficulties, the person who says, I don't want to be married to you anymore, the doctor who says, I'm going to run some more tests, but you have to realize this is very serious. I think Jesus is talking about those kind of storms. So Jesus says, there is something that you can build your life on 
that will enable you to withstand those storms. And he tells us what it is. He says it's his words. He says it's his words. And for us, it's like, okay, yeah, you know, well, that's what I would expect is Jesus. What, what else would he say it is? But we have, we have very great difficulty realizing how, how shocking this would have been to his original audience. We heard a couple of passages from the Hebrew scriptures where the rock, the rock of Israel, the rock that Israel looks to as the source of stability is God. And Jesus just says, yep, my words. Jesus just equates his words with the rock of Israel. And it is hard for us to imagine how shocking that would have been to his original audience. So first of all, it's it's easier for us to hear what Jesus has to say simply because of familiarity. We've heard this before. Um, we've heard that Jesus has done this. We've, we probably have um, uh, uh, an elevated ap- appreciation of Jesus, even if we're not Christians. We know that there's a lot of people who are, so we figure he must have been somebody important. So, so we don't see him as some uh, backwoods hillbilly preacher who shows up in the big city and says, my words equal the rock of Israel. But that's the way it would have landed on his original audience. And there's another way it's easier for us, too. It's easier for us because this was 2,000 years ago that Jesus said this. And there's been a lot of testimonies since then of people who have put his words into practice and said, you know what? He wasn't kidding. It does help. It enables me to get through my life. And I know not every Christian has done this, right? That's kind of the point of his of his uh, message here. He's saying, if you haven't, you should. But down over the last 2,000 years, there's been enough people who have made a serious effort to put his words into practice that their testimony has come down to us, right? And you may know some in your own life, but if not, you can find some. You read a, a biography of a saint, you read about the kind of amazing things they did, the way that they trusted in Jesus, and they endured all kinds of difficulties that we, our minds boggle at. So we hear the testimony of people who have actually done this. And we hear other testimony too. I want to share, I want to share a little bit of testimony from an unlikely source today. Uh, this is um, a woman named Dr. Melanie Brewster. She's a psychologist. Uh, she's a professor at, of psychology at Columbia University. And um, uh, I saw this, uh, just an amazing video of her. She's giving a talk at Skepticon. Skepticon is a convention of atheists. And she, she identifies as an atheist. Um, and she's giving a talk about the psycho- why psychology, well, I forget the title of the talk, but it's, it's why is psychology science on athe- uh, silent on atheism? And she's saying so much research has been done about people who have faith. Why is psychology silent on atheism? And so that's kind of the big idea. But um, here's, here's what she looks like a little closer up. And um, so she, what, what, what's interesting to me is in the course of this talk, she says, she says the, the science is pretty clear that people who have Faith in their life have better outcomes. Um, and I, I was thinking about making my own slide, but I said, no, I'll use her slide. So, so what does she say? She says, uh, people who have faith have, are, are more satisfied with life. They're happier. They're less depressed. They're less socially isolated. That in a number of different areas, they have consistently better outcomes, people who have faith, than people who don't. Um, and you can't get a, a less um, uh, interested party to, to admit this than somebody who's giving a talk, an atheist who's giving a talk at a convention of atheists. So Dr. Melanie Brewster, she gives this talk, 
And she explains this. And she said that there's a, there's some metrics psychologists use when they're talking about satisfaction, um, that they compare one population to another to help people understand what it is. So she says, she says, imagine a pair of identical twins. And, you know, they're alike in terms of uh, education and background, race, ethnicity, everything that you might think would, would confuse the issue. So imagine this pair of identical twins and give one a, a salary of $10,000 a year and give the other a salary of $100,000 a year and then measure their life satisfaction. That's going to be a big difference. Money doesn't buy happiness um, outside of a range, right? If you're if you're below a certain range, you're going to be equally unhappy probably. And if you're above a certain range, you're probably, you know, an extra dollar is not going to make a difference. But there is a range in the middle where you just know that would make things a lot easier, right? If I just had a little bit more money, I wouldn't worry as much about this or that, right? So so we understand that. And that's a huge measurement. In psychological terms, she says this is a gigantic difference. The person who has no faith and the person who does the difference is as great as somebody who's making $10,000 a year versus somebody who's making $100,000 a year. So that's that's her metric, not mine. So um, she says that consistently people of faith are, are regularly found to be um, happier. Now she goes into some explanation of where that comes from, and she she has some some uh, concerns about the the way that some of that science is is um, is uh, conducted. Um, uh, she says that that um, the one of, one of the factors is that it is stressful to be in a minority, any kind of minority, including a religious minority, to be people who are saying, no, there is no God, that they suffer stress to be part, to be kind of out of kilter with respect to the rest of society. And so I would say, frankly, as Christians, um, if people are suffering stress, I think we need to love atheists more. I think that, that you know, I had not thought of that before as a, as a category of people who, whose lives are harder because of the way that they they um, live out their lives, and so I think as Christians, one of the things we're called to do is to love everyone that God loves. And so I encourage you, if you know any atheists, love them, love them not with an agenda, just love them. If someday they ask you why, you know, go ahead and tell them because God God loves them, and you want to chase after the things that are close to God's heart. By all means, but don't love them with an agenda. Just love them because their life is a little bit harder than other people's lives. So one of her reasons was the minority stress theory. But another reason is she says it's better to have a settled belief. She said, actually, atheists are better off than agnostics. When you dig down deep into those research, that people who are sure of what they believe have better lives than people who aren't so sure. So she is unwittingly or wittingly telling us what Jesus says, that if you have a firm foundation, then your life will withstand the storms that come. So, that's what an atheist has to say. And there's 2,000 years of Christians who could add to it. And I want to just quote two of them, two people who have reflected on this issue, and we can hear their um, their comments in um, a way that maybe an atheist or a skeptic wouldn't. So um, what they say is that the foundation ultimately improves the house. If you build on the right foundation, it's not just that it's stronger, but it actually affects the house. Um, uh, in the year 400 or so, um, the uh, uh, theologian Augustine of Hippo, St. Augustine, he said this. He, he said this in his book of confessions. He said, my soul is like a house small for you to enter, but I pray you to enlarge it. It is in ruins, but I ask you to remake it. It contains much you will not be pleased to see. But who is to rid it of these things? You know, they said, cut that out, and I've tried. I'm not having much success. Maybe you could. 
Augustine said that Jesus is not simply a foundation. He is a foundation that improves the house. Um, about 60 years ago, um, 70 years ago, C.S. Lewis, a British writer, he gave a series of radio talks, and he said this. He gave this analogy, kind of a similar one. He said, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping leaks in the roof and so on. You knew those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting up an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. This is the testimony of Christians for 2,000 years, that if we build our lives on the foundation that is Christ's words, we will have better lives. So, what foundation is your life built on? You know, Jesus is calling people to make a change. He's not saying, okay, you've just heard a sermon, and you kind of got that little religious tingle, and you kind of said, you know, way to go, pastor, um, and then walk out, and it makes no difference in your life. And you come back next Sunday, and you go through the whole routine over and over again. Jesus is saying, are you putting this into practice? So my question for you is, are you building on the foundation that is the word of Jesus Christ. You know, what do I mean by that? Well, just in the Sermon on the Mount, think of some of the things that Jesus has said in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, he said, um, he's talked about the, the kinds of things that we should be doing. He says we should love our enemies. He says we should go the second mile. If somebody says go one mile, say, okay, I'll do two. He says, he says we should turn the other cheek. He says, we should live by the golden rule. We should do unto others as we would have them do to us, whether or not they ever reciprocate. Jesus says, we should live our lives that way. He says, we should not judge others. He says, we should not worry, not worry about money, not worry about any kind of calamity that might befall tomorrow. Are you living your life like that? Jesus says to practice all of our virtues in private. Not on Facebook. Are you living your life like you believe what he said? Or do you simply give mental assent to the things that Jesus says, but you live your life pretty much like everybody else? So are you built on the foundation that is the rock? And let me close with this. Let me ask about the church Jesus gave our church, he gave every church, the church, the mission to proclaim the good news of the availability of the kingdom of God, that people can be part of the kingdom of God today. They don't have to wait till Judgment Day, that the kingdom of God is something that's available to us right now. And the reason for that is because it breaks Jesus' heart every time a house gets washed away. Every time a marriage fails, every time somebody enters bankruptcy, every time a family is alienated from one another. Every time somebody goes deeper into a cycle of substance abuse, it breaks his heart. So he calls us as a church to give testimony to the availability of the, 
of the kingdom of God. So I want to close with some words once again from another unlikely source, Dr. Melanie Brewster. I'm going to have to turn around. I can't read that small print. So she says, people who attend church at least weekly volunteer to help the poor and elderly, youth, neighborhood, civic groups, health organizations, and art, cultural groups, and donate more to secular causes more than those who attend church rarely or never. She says, she says, people who have faith, people who are part of a church like this, do things atheists have trouble doing, that we just take it for granted, that if I show up in church on Sunday, they will help me do things that better my community. They will give me opportunities to serve, like our, our ministry with the uh, mobile food pantry down on 88th Street, or to, to provide um, school supplies to needy children in a couple of weeks, that this is something we take for granted because it's just what the church does. And she was saying, atheists don't have that. Atheists don't have structures that enable them to do the things that they would like to do to make the world a better place. We have that as a church. That is what we're about. And then she said this. She said, atheists don't have community. Atheists need community. One of the reasons that people of faith are happier is because they have community. If you're an atheist, is somebody going to take you dinner when you're sad? Are they going to bring flowers to a sick family member? Are they going to pick up your kid from school? Are they going to spread news about an art show? Are they going to engage in social justice activities together? Are they going to help you collect money for a special cause? Are they going to process how angry you are about politics? Are they going to let you be yourself? See, the world is desperate for the kind of community the church takes for granted. Jesus said that if we build our lives on the rock that is his words, we will have stronger, better lives. We will withstand the storms of life. And that's not something you have to trust Jesus for. You can listen to his critics. You can listen to people who don't think he had anything important to say, and they say the same thing. So let's be the kind of church where we as individuals and as a community try hard to put into practice the things that Jesus teaches us so that we can have a better life and so the world can be better off for it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for the word of Jesus Christ. We thank you for this whole Sermon on the Mount and all the challenging things, the the changes that he calls us to make that seem a lot more daunting than putting on sunscreen or tying our shoes differently, Lord, to pray for our enemies, to love atheists, to live by the golden rule, to go the other mile, to turn the other cheek, to not judge, to not worry, to practice all of our virtues in private. Lord, help us to do these things. We want to have better lives, and we want to be part of your work to make the lives of all your children better. We pray it through Christ our Lord. Amen.